You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Welcome to Digital Noise. This is, well, recording-wise, the last Digital Noise of 2017, although you guys won't hear it till the first day of 2018. So, hey, congratulations. It's the first Digital Noise of 2018. Happy New Year. <laughs> and I'm here joined by John Golson. We have a lot of stuff to cover this week, but real quick, how were your holidays? Holidays were spent convalescing. Okay. Uh, I had the crud that it seems like everybody has now. But you but had, I had a, it during Christmas time. You had so. a great excuse to do nothing, though. That sounds like a I dream. I did, and so much nothing that I can't actually remember what it was that I did during <laughs> during uh, Christmas. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, a lot of people can't either, but that's for entirely different reasons. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I'm like, yeah, the end gets a little fuzzy. <laughs> I wish I, it's weird because I'm like, it feels like a lifetime ago, and it's literally one week ago, and I'm just like, what did I do last Saturday? No idea. Can't remember at all. Probably played video games. I don't know. You know, it is that one of those things as I get older, I'd be like, what did I do two days ago? Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> Your brain has just gotten more adept at sweeping out useless information. Yeah. <laughs> and now that we all have like digital calendars, we're like, I don't need to remember anything. Yep. <laughs> just clear the slate every morning. Exactly. Right? Wake <laughs> uh-huh. up blank. All right. Well, let's. We're here to talk about the latest Blu-rays and DVDs. So let's get into it. Launching with uh, this episode's Criterion, which is the movie Election. This was uh, Alexander Payne's first full-length film in 1999, uh, based on a novel from the year before of the same title. And this is one of those movies I think caught a lot of people by surprise because the way they marketed this, and none of us knew who Alexander Payne was when this came out, the way they marketed this was very much felt like, I mean, you got Matthew Broderick, Broderick and playing a teacher in high school and there's a lot of like people who you recognize like Reese Witherspoon playing Tracy Flick and, uh, um, Chris Klein who had already been in uh, American Pie, I believe at this point. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, okay, so it looks like a teen comedy and it, is, <laughs> but it's an incredibly subversive uh, movie that is feels more timely now with all the discussion of like sexual harassment and things like that yeah. than it ever did when it originally came out. Yeah, that was a that was actually. Uh, it, there's been some rumblings this week actually in the wake of downsizing that Alexander Payne may not be on the up and up when it comes to his treatment of women on sets. Oh, really? Yeah, and that kind of disappointed me for a broader reason than most of these cases. And that's because election felt so prescient mm-hmm. in regards to how it treats toxic masculinity. Yeah. I mean, the male teachers are already sexualizing Tracy and like, right. There's so much of that going on that I was like, it nails a lot of that mindset, that male mindset in a way that also is condemning it and indicting it like in the film. So it's a disappointing to me to, to learn that, uh, Alexander Payne may have been part and parcel with that type of behavior <laughs> as right. well. Um, but yeah, and the other thing, talking about the marketing of the movie, I had always assumed that the movie did well. And then after I watched it, I went and looked because I was curious, 
it bombed. Yeah, and I had no idea it did bomb because it felt like a movie that, and I guess it was the you know the last gasps of the video store at that time because it came out in '99. Yeah, um, I guess it was one of those that everybody rented and liked because I felt like it was a popular movie that people loved. And everybody I about. knew was talking about. Yeah, it. and yeah. I've continued to talk about off and on for a good twenty years. I mean, it stayed. It's one of those that has stayed more or less around. You know, people people rewatch it and talk it about it. Does a lot of things that nobody had done yet. Like for instance, when like you said these these older teachers who are sexualizing this high school student, mm-hmm. like in any other movie where that something like that happened, the student genuinely was portrayed as very sexy. Yeah. They don't do that here. She's just a normal high school girl. And the way they do it is hearing these guys talk in their toxic masculinity way about how sexy she is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, you're, you pull away, you recoil listening to them, mm. you know, like talking about how wet she gets and everything. And you're like, Ooh, she's like 16. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's just so much going on in the plot here is it just ping pongs. You're following Matthew Broderick as your protagonist, but the way that it constantly keeps you on your toes, not sure what to expect next. Um, and by the end of it, it has sort of like a, like it's a fable, but not one that feels the need to like pound you over the head, you know, with a sort of like, you know what I mean? Like it's a moral fable, but yeah. at the end it's kind of like, yeah, but life goes on. And even for the people who did stuff they weren't supposed to and you know, whatever, mm-hmm. maybe they all, maybe everybody learned something. Yeah. Maybe they didn't. This is life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would be interesting to catch up with flick as a, as an adult. Like, you know, I wouldn't object if somebody came, if Alexander Payne said tomorrow, yeah, we're going to do an election sequel. Yeah. We're going to catch up with flick in her forties. Yeah. I would totally be down with oh, that. Oh yeah. I think it'd be really interesting. Yeah. And, and like Broderick who ends up in a position where like they have to deal with each other again, mm-hmm. you know? And, but as long as they do find something different to do with it, I would be interested. Yeah. Um, all right. So the extras on this thing, this being a criterion, uh, of course are sizable, but the real like winner here is a short film. Well, it's not very short by Alexander Payne called the, the passion of Martin that was screened at 1991 in Sundance film festival. It's about 49 minutes long, um, with the director's statement and text format and a filmed introduction, uh, that is well worth your time. I, I don't think it, it stands out as much as election does, but it was, uh, it, it was definitely like, Oh, I can see why this got him a lot of attention and the money to make election, you know? And it's another one of those toxic masculinity stories. <laughs> Guy who's like meets the right girl and then becomes obsessive and dangerous. Um, well, we're seeing, uh, there's a brand new video interview with Reese Witherspoon. There is an episode of true TV's documentary, true inside about the history of production history of election. Uh, there's a vintage TV report, uh, that was broadcast on in CBS in 1997 about the movie. There's a vintage audio commentary with, uh, Alexander Payne that comes from the original DVDs, uh, release of the thing. And then there is a illustrated leaflet with an essay about the film. So yeah, real solid. Criterion package for a movie that I feel like for maybe a younger generation, they just missed this one. Mm-hmm. It seems likely, but it's one that I would say is well worth revisiting today. Yeah, it's, re- it's really still holds up. It's quite entertaining. Yeah, really. Not, and, and feels unique as well amongst like late 90s quote unquote teen films. 
It really does. There's nothing else I could really compare. There's nothing else I could actually compare to it. And I think that's, I mean, maybe it's lucky in the sense that it didn't perform well in theaters. So nobody did a copy of it, really. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> movies that are successful. There's like eight other movies that are, are kind of similar in a way. And Election kind of is by itself. Uh, so we've got a whole slew of like horror movies to talk about in a row. So let's just dive through. Okay. Uh, we'll start off with the one that you got to see, Brackenmore. Yeah. Which is a very low-budget version of The Wicker Man, essentially. I feel like I've seen this movie a, a half dozen times, at least. Even the, even the like, was this a Hammer movie from a, just a, a recent Hammer movie, not one of the vintage ones, mm-hmm. but that's the same kind of thing yeah. where a family moves to, like, some backwoods Ireland, place whole, in Ireland, and everybody turns out to be cultists. Yeah, the whole town and, are cultists. Yeah. They don't, either don't like the, the, I mean, it's a, it, it's a, I, what's the term I'm looking for? It's, it's like a plot that you see happen over and over it's again. Stock. In yeah, it's stock. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's certainly nothing original going on here with a woman who has come to this town because she's inherited a house from her, I think, uncle, I think they said, uh, who, who has killed himself. And everyone seems nice enough at first, but then it comes clear that there's people with really shoddy, cheap dime store masks that, um, with the exception of like one guy in a cool mask yeah. <laughs> running around, one kid in a cool mask, who are like alternately trying to just stalk her or kill her or something. And it's super evident early on. This is one of those movies. Yes. And I will say, I think the only thing that really stood out for me here whatsoever was the performance of this lead actress, uh, whose name I'm having trouble locating right now, who I actually thought was uh, quite good in the role. Um, yeah, I, uh, she brought a lot to it, more than Sophie it probably Hopkins. deserved. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that the acting is fine across the board for sort of a no-budget film. Yeah. Uh, I just felt like, you know, I, my mind goes back to the Stuart Gordon quote, uh, which is a movie should show you one thing you've never seen before, and this movie did not. No. It was all things I'd seen before. Yeah, the, the one exceptional being there was an interesting twist at the very end that I was like, okay, I admit I didn't see that coming. That was, But it was so last minute, it kind of wasn't enough to, you know, the entire rest of the running time. <laughs> it's yeah. like we've seen this a billion times before. So, um, yeah, this is, I mean, it's just, it's a directed DVD, probably played some festival with, with, uh, you know, that just got started in the past few years somewhere. And it, <laughs> and it feels, I mean, I feel like a little bit of guilt, uh, cause I feel like I'm being mean to the film. Right. Um, I mean, it's competently made. Yeah, it's, it's it was just a bad choice of scripts. Yeah, it's know? not the most it's not the most interesting story to tell. Yeah, and they may not have been aware that this story has been worn to death. I don't. I don't know. I don't know either. But they should be aware. If you're making horror <laughs> movies, you should probably know something about yeah. horror movies. Bracken Moore is more like Bracken Less, uh, but it was still better than one of the ones you didn't get to see, which was Halloween Pussy Trap Kill Kill. Yes, I did watch a movie called Halloween Pussy Trap Kill Kill. And this is only because of the only reason I even sat through this is because the guys from, who sends me all the arrow stuff sent it. And I don't watch everything he sends, but this is one of those that sat on my shelf because this one's been out for a while. And I was like, it just kept looking at me. And I was like, with a title like that, I 
you know, you both are recoiling and strangely intrigued by it. Um, and I shouldn't have been. This is just a bad, very sexist knockoff of Saw. Oh, with, really? Yeah, all female, uh, like rock band that ends up getting abducted and brought into a series of rooms by a voice that's of a, uh, uh, soldier the whole beginning of this is like you're like wait what the fuck is like in iraq or afghanistan or somewhere with like a military mission that goes wrong and people being gorily beheaded by by isis and you're like why are we watching this what does this have to do with halloween pussy trap kill kill but you're like okay so one of the guys from there is our handicapped killer who has programmed all these rooms and is made forcing them to make choices of life or death to survive and get to the next room okay. and it's yeah, it's just more of that shit. And I guess it, it's it was, somebody said it was Saw with with the Suicide Girls, basically. Yeah. You know, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, with just as much playing it with the title like that, you know, they're going for sexploitation, and that's exactly what it is. There's a lot of nudity in it, like that's really ridiculous. Um, uh, a couple, if you're really into like Suicide Girl type stuff, there's people you'll recognize, but nobody I did because. Clearly, I guess I'm not really into Suicide Girls. Um, yeah, whatever. N- nothing against them. I can't remember. Thing. the like. It, I feel like it's been 15 years since I've looked at right. Suicide Girls. Right. I forget they exist. <laughs> I'm old now. <laughs> I've got no time for porn. <laughs> I, I, like, I just saw the other day that there's, there's apparently a Hamilton porn parody now uh-huh. like by that company that spends a lot of money on porn yeah. parodies called Hamilton, which I was like, okay, points. Um, but I watched the trailer and they, uh, the whole thing is a musical. They was, actually that's do. the thing I was curious about. Are they yeah. doing the rapping? No, they're doing the full rapping. And like in the trailer, you're watching the rapping about, you know, sex basically yeah. being filthy, but then, you know, it gets every once in a while gets interrupted so they can actually have sex. So eh, whatever. Anyway, uh, that is not, ha- uh, Halloween pussy trap kill kill, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what? It's probably better. So. I'm just going to say this was not very good. Um, and then we, did you ever get to see Mayhem when it played South by Southwest? No. Is that Lynch? Is that Joe Lynch? It is the Joe, Dull, Joe Lynch. I did not see it. No, I, I did not. I, and I have seen people, weirdly enough, I've seen a lot of people take pictures of their DVD, but I think that's because, uh, Joe Lynch is such a social media person yeah. that everybody's like, look what I'm watching Joe Lynch. So I've seen a lot of like, I've seen the, I feel like I've seen the cover in my Twitter feed over and over. Well, I, I did. In fact, I, I saw a South by and then I, um, watched it again here on Blu-ray and I got to say, I am deeply in love with this movie. Oh, really? Really? The first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, that was fun. It was better than I had any right to be. And the second time I was like, holy shit, this is kind of a new classic. You know, I mean, it's doing what the Belko experiment was doing, except mm-hmm. where that movie failed, this one completely succeeds in that it's actually kind of funny and you're enjoying it. And even though the protagonists are anti-heroes, for sure, they are much more likable and easy to want to follow in their footsteps than anyone from the Belko experiment, which have both have very similar plots. Uh, I liked it so much, I, I tweeted at Joe Lynch and said, thank you so much for making this insane and awesome movie, and he retweeted it. I was like, yay, because, you know, he's Joe Lynch, that's yeah. what he does. Can't hurt. Anyway, yeah, this uh, movie stars Stephen Yuan, that's Glenn from The Walking, formerly of The Walking Dead. Oops, spoiler. Der- uh, <laughs> playing Derek Cho, who works at this big corporation, and he's middle management guy. 
And he finds out essentially he's going to be thrown under the bus by his bosses. Um, Stephen Brand playing the main boss and the various people under him b- between to cover up for one of the higher bosses mistakes. And he's like, fuck this. I've given up every ounce of dignity I have for this job. I literally just had to, you know, deal with this poor woman played by, uh, Samara weaving who came in, was trying to save her house from bank foreclosure in a way that he's like, I totally could have done something about it, but I didn't. Cause I'm not supposed to, that's not my job. When all of this is going on in the middle of like, you know, tensions rising, it turns out there is a rage virus, that is curable, but it takes eight hours of exposure to an anti-agent for you to not feel the effects. Uh, every building these days is equipped with a detector because the issue, the problem is it makes you just lose all your inhibitions. You're just like, you know, fucking killing whatever yeah. you just, you, what you know, you just don't care. You're going to go with it, but you're communicable. You can talk, you know, you can re you can still have a, a reg, you're not like, like 28 days later or something. Right. <clears throat> so the problem is this is the very company that actually set the landmark case of somebody who was under the effects of the virus and killed people and got off scot-free. It's like, well, he wasn't responsible for his actions. Right. So, uh, when this happens and uh, the, the CDC shows up, closes down the building, says, okay, we're pumping in the anti agent, but you, y- you know, for eight hours, you guys are going to be under the effect of this virus. So try not to do anything wrong. Everything erupts into chaos. And we follow, uh, Steven's character along with Samara's character who end up uh, unexpectedly teaming up against the big company to try and work their way up the, up the company tower, uh, which requires stealing various pass cards from, from upper management so they can go and kill the boss. <laughs> and it is super fun. It's gory, but not, Let's sit and stare at it, Gory. You know, it, yeah. It's just, it has a wild sense of rock and roll about it that sort of feels maybe something like the more fun scenes in Battle Royale. You know, it's mm-hmm. Battle Royale in an office building. Cool. Yeah, and I thoroughly recommend this thing. It is just enormous amounts of fun. It is one of my favorite horror movies of the year, in fact. And, uh, yeah, I believe it's actually going to be on Netflix soon, but for now the Blu-ray, uh, you can actually get it in 4k as well, which must mean they were somewhat confident about this thing's legs on home life, which had almost no theatrical life outside of festivals. Um, and there's, uh, a commentary track here and a, uh, sort of EPK creating mayhem, uh, and then a look inside some of the paintings that are in the film. Cause the lead character is an artist. Yeah. But other than that, there's not a lot extra. But still, this is a movie I know I'm going to go back to again and again and again. I haven't seen a Joel Lynch film in a while, and I I remember him as being pretty versatile. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't a fan of uh, his horror sitcom. Oh. And then he kind of. And then he did another Hatchet movie, and I'm not the biggest Hatchet fan, although I appreciate appreciate the Hatchet movies. And again, I think they. Was it Hatchet or Wrong Turn? Lynch is that I'm thinking of Adam Green, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. Right. I'm sorry. He was an actor in Hatchet too. Okay. Am I getting Lynch confused? Who Who's the Frozen guy? Uh, that that's that's Adam Green. That's Adam Green. Yeah. Then I Look, am getting Lynch. The, did uh like he first got on the scene really with Wrong Turn Two, which everyone said yeah. was much better than the first <laughs> one. Um, and then uh, Knights of Badassdom, which was a famous right. story of like you know everything getting all fucked up. But yeah. then the first movie he did that really blew me away was Everly, which I thought was really great. That's Selma, Selma Hayek. Hayek, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was getting him confused with Adam Green. I was yeah. I was conflating the two. It's easy, yeah. dude. There's a lot of like this new sort of new crop of like indie 
uh, horror directors that seem like they trade places in each other's films a lot, yeah. you know, like they appear in each other's movies and they co-produce and they co-write and they, whatever. I mean, even some of these guys who aren't even exclusively horror directors who are like, yeah, I dip my toe in every once in a while. Then I think the only Joe Lynch film I've seen is wrong turn Two. you should watch, uh, uh Everly and mayhem. They're both quite good. Cool. Although this is by far the best thing that he has done. No question about it. All right. So, uh, another horror movie. I'm not going to spend much time on this one. This is one of those directed DVD ones that bafflingly, I saw a lot of people who liked it online called hollow Creek. Uh, it's, you know, starts with a text scrawl. A child goes missing in the United States every 40 seconds. The first three hours are the most crucial for the safe return of that child. Over 75% of American children are killed or dead within the three hours. Even though there's no, this is not really about abducted children. They're kind of a MacGuffin. Uh, it's a guy who's a writer. He's going out to a cabin with his mistress, uh, you know, who are both older. They're both in like their forties mm-hmm. and, uh, he's married, but planning on leaving her in a, in a not in one of the ways of which no way he actually is planning on leaving her. She's, she's deeply mentally disturbed, apparently his wife, which never plays into this in any real way for the record. Uh, and there's something going on, constant noise in the background about how there's missed kids who are being abducted. And then, uh, the, the mistress goes to the store to get some stuff. She sees a car with the kids from the picture and follows it. And she gets abducted. And so then it's kind of like, all right, so she's been abducted by this crazed couple. And then it's, you know, a long time later. (laughs) And there's a bunch of shit going on. Like she was pregnant when she got abducted, but didn't want to have the child. Well, now she doesn't have a choice. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's soap opera quality filmmaking in terms of like, you know, the, the quality of the production here. It's, it's, it doesn't even look very good. The performances are soap opera quality, you know, maybe better than your average soap opera actor, but still, and for some reason, this thing keeps getting, uh, like, is this second re-release of this thing? And I'm not sure why haunting in hollow Creek, but you haven't said, you haven't said it's even a haunted. They're just calling it hollow Creek now. Yeah. There is a, Totally like, wait, what storyline that really is so wildly unnecessary where apparently one of the kids, this couple abducted would, wouldn't stop misbehaving. So they killed it. So the kid's ghost keeps appearing to the mistress. And in the end, there's a little, a minor deus machina with him. And you know what? There's no reason for that to be there. He serves almost no purpose in the story. It's just a, I don't know, like somebody at the last minute was like, this needs more. It may have been something at the beginning that was like, hey, uh, yeah, we'll finance your movie, but it has to have ghosts. It has in to have it. ghosts. Went, uh, okay. Fuck. Let's yeah. shoehorn a ghost in. Yeah, they pretty much shoehorn a <clears throat> ghost in. But no, I can't. I can't recommend Hollow Creek. Sorry, Hollow Creek. No can do. Um, also, but. To a lesser extent, oh. can't recommend Leatherface, which is the uh, yet another attempt to re-enter the Texas Chainsaw Massacre brand, this time with the completely unnecessary origin story for said Leatherface, where, where we meet him as a young kid, and somehow they got some quality actors to appear in this thing, like a... Um, Oh, what is her name? The mom. Lily, uh, Taylor. Lily Taylor. To play the mom matriarch of the family. And, uh, with Stephen Dorff as a sort of, you know, uh, essentially a, a version of, uh, 
Dennis Hopper's sh- cop character from Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. 2, like a younger version of him where he's like got a hard on against the family who he knows are killers but can't prove it. He manages though to get young Leatherface put away and, and into a, a, a juvenile uh, detention facility and, you know, but one that's more of a psychiatric hospital. And we see in the beginning, because otherwise you're going to be like, why would I root for this guy at all? That young Leatherface doesn't want to kill, which is right off the bat. You just kind of roll your eyes. You're like, okay, whatever. Um, And part of the the, the movie's thing is like, oh, which one of these young people is Leatherface? Because it's years later. They're more grown up. They're young adults now, basically. And they were all forced to change their names. So we don't know who is who. Um, and of course the movie's misdirect is so obvious. If you can't figure it out, I don't even know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, it was one of those where I was like, how could this be as bad as I've heard? Because <clears throat> I like Mori and Bastille. Um, I like the films that they've made and even ones that weren't maybe wholly successful narratively, like Levide. Mm-hmm. Um, I still are livid. As, oh, I love uh, inside yeah. and inside. It was am- and I was amazing. like, how could this be bad? And it was surprise. It was, uh, you know, there's some movies that you just get partway through and you're like, this is in no way worth my time. Like, like there's, there's gore in it. And it's one of those films where almost all the characters are like relentlessly unpleasant, kind of like the Rob Zombie films. Yes. But it also doesn't have that energy or that nastiness either. So it's, it's Which just is sort of like if from like directors who are known for making films that are have a degree of like shockingness to them that even the hardened horror fans can barely keep their eyes on it. There's nothing like that here. And part of the problem is, is that most of the stuff that where you can see that's where they're trying to go is so utterly predictable. And, like, you see it coming from a thousand miles away that there's just no way to be shocked by it. It also doesn't – I don't think it jibes well with what we know of the Sawyers in the first two films. No. Um, I don't think it connects to those very well in a way that's logical and makes sense. Or at least from my perception of who Leatherface is or was. Right. One would assume from watching the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre that he's – Probably mentally deficient. Mm. There's a lot of cross-dressing in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that leads you to believe that there was probably, you know, and again, this is a character based on Ed Gein, so it makes you think there was probably some forced uh, gender stuff that was happening along with some abuse when he's a kid. But Yeah, their excuse for the, 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 the cross-dressing was like, Last second, out of nowhere, like well, that does it just just because. Don't yeah, worry about but it. What you end up in this film is you end up with a, a, a honestly, I mean, objectively looking at it, a loving mother. Mm. Now, is she completely crazy? Does she force him to kill? <laughs> yes, but you don't. You she don't loves get the perception from the first two films that he's the product of a loving family. You get the perception he's a he's a product. He's he was already broken and then it was just a case of being raised by broken people. Well yeah, when you you know, during the the bulk of this film where we're seeing him as one of the protagonists, you're like, there's no way that kid grows up to be Leatherface. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. There's not anything believable about that in the story. The the film doesn't feel there's not a bone of anything in it that feels authentic. Like all the stuff at the beginning, it's supposed to be the fifties and they're in like a co ed some kind of weird co-ed dorm style mental institution where I'm just like, this is such like automatically off the bat. There's so little work put into even a screenwriter cracking a book and going, what were mental institutions like at that time? Instead, it's just, I'm making a movie because I've seen other movies and I'm going to base it off 
like I'm just going to make stuff up. So there's nothing authentic about it. It is not. It is not worth your time. Even if you're a completist and you want to watch every single Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, it's just not. It's still better than some of the other Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. I will tell you it that it is closer in. It's it is closer to the to the expectations of the brand. Yeah. Uh, you do see people massacred with a chainsaw. <laughs> that is true. That, that does, uh, in fact, There is happen. no glib humor like there was in 3D. It's um, just, we need to stop with the whole, you know, the the Pat Oswalt Star Wars joke. The, you want you like ice cream? Well, here's a bag of rock salt. Yeah. You know, it's like we need to stop with that. We don't need to see the baby origins of characters. No. Just stop doing that shit. No. Uh, we got to sit through Han Solo, and then hopefully everyone will learn their lesson. <laughs> uh, there's a, an alternate ending, which really is actually surprisingly a little bit different. It, I didn't you, watch that. You still end up in largely the same place, but it's, it takes a different route to get there. Um, there is a 13 and a half minute making of, and then there's 21 minutes of deleted scenes. If that's something anyone is ever Gosh. going to sit through, I don't know. This was such, that was such a letdown. I I just expected better from those filmmakers. I really did. Uh, more interesting. And this kind of startled me because it came with a stack of other hard DVDs. I was not crazy about, uh, and it just looked like yet another cornball D level horror DVD was the German black and white horror film. True love ways. This is a strange film that starts off me thinking, all right. Seems like a little pretentious to make this movie black and white, but whatever. Um, but it's German, so what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, who's following uh, this lady in a very sort of, good Lord, more like French New Wave feeling than anything else. God help me for saying it about a horror movie, but it really does. Uh, this woman who her she's having trouble with her, her current boyfriend. They're kind of lost their connection point and he's very broken up about it. He meets a guy in a bar who's like, oh, you know what you should do? You hire me to abduct her, right? And then at the last minute before I can get her in a car, you show up and you save her. That Tarzan thing, that will just kick in those instincts and she'll be deeply in love with you again, right? So you figure that's kind of where this movie is going, even though I'm not really sure why that was something that he would have tried to set up with a boyfriend at all in retrospect. But this isn't one of those type of movies. Uh, she is on a road trip. Uh, Severine, who, by the way, this this actress who's playing her, um, oh my, Anna Hosberg, is stunningly beautiful. Just like, wow, one of those faces you just remember. Uh, she take her, takes a, the road trip on her own, and along the way she runs out of gas, I never understand how people do that. How do you run out of gas? You didn't look at the end and say, oh, I should put gas in before I go on a long road trip. <laughs> I, I've, I've been almost there. Yeah. I decided to take, I was going to Savannah and I was like, I'm not going to take the interstate. I'm going to take the back roads. And I did and discovered there were no, no gas, gas stations. stations. Oh, fair enough. Um, but along the way, she, she, she uh, sees a big house and she goes into it. And she ends up in a situation where she's literally hiding under a bed while a girl is basically they're making a, these guys are making a snuff film of, of a girl of like raping her and then killing her. Now the movie is smart enough to do everything from the perspective of the, the, the heroine under the bed. We don't actually see 99% of what's going on on top of the bed. We see sort of this, her remove from it all, you know, which is definitely a statement about what people like. I mean, she, we see a lot of her reflected in the mirror during this scene, the, the heroine, and it 
definitely seems to be talking about how people feel like when they've been raped, they, they feel like they're out of their body watching the experience. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that going on that goes to like, definitely reminds me of stuff that like Jarmouche would do or something. But as it goes along, the guy in fact in charge of this group is the guy who talked to the boyfriend and it, you start realizing, wait, this is a strong female protagonist film as she starts taking them out one by one. But then it gets really weird. Like there's a scene where she like cuts off a guy's head and then she picks up his head and starts making out with the dismembered head. And you're like, wait, what just happened in this movie? And then by the end, it's just gone completely batshit insane. I cannot tell you exactly what happened. When <laughs> It just went into total unreality. Um, but all that being said, this is a, Unlike those other horror movies we were talking about, this was interesting. It showed me stuff I've never seen before. Yeah. And it kept me with it all the way through, even if at the end I was like, I have no idea what this movie was trying to say. But <laughs> it was certainly an interesting journey to its question mark. <laughs> it's called True Love Ways. And I would say it's actually, if you like experimental horror films, this is worth a shot. Totally worth taking a look. Speaking of experimental horror films, <laughs> this year, one of the most controversial films of the year was uh, Darren Aronofsky's Mother, uh, starring uh, Jennifer Lawrence in a role that I think she has been unjustly not credited with how strong a performance it was. Um, I, I have not talked to you about this film yet, so I have no idea how you actually feel about it because people either love this film, they hate this film or go, I don't even know what that was. Oh, I like the fact that somehow, uh, a major studio slipped a, uh, like sort of an experimental art house film onto thousands of screens Yeah, with name stars. Yeah. That's there's something about that that I find interesting because it's, I can't remember the time a film so polarizing and, and for lack of a better word, kind of artsy fartsy, like got that amount of play from a studio. Right. So in that regard, like, I think that's awesome. I don't know that I, I neither really liked it nor disliked it. I, I weirdly enough, am kind of right in the middle on it. Um, I appreciated what it was doing, but I never found myself. I found myself more engaged trying to figure out what it was than, than involved in the actual scenes as they played out. So instead of sure. having like an emotional stake or being being engaged with the images and the scenes as they were happening. Instead, it was, I'm 10 feet away from this movie, scratching my chin and going, what is this? And what I kind of started to think it was, I guess it's not really. It's supposed to be a, more of a biblical allegory. But I thought it was more of an allegory about celebrity. Apparently, it's like a, the primary allegory has to do with the way we treat the earth. Yeah. Which I did not see at all as I was watching it. I saw some of the biblical stuff, but there's a, even Aronofsky talks about this movie with very clearly saying there's not just one allegory. It's not one of those movies. Everything is this, is this, this is that, this is that. He's making a deeply experimental art film that has a lot of different ways you, things you can bring into it and interpret it. And I completely get that that is not going to be everybody's cup of tea because mm -hmm. this is a movie you can't 
really watch as just a normal narrative. There's no way to interpret this film that way and make any sense out of it whatsoever. Um, it, 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 the only way you can is it feels, and through the whole thing, it feels like somebody told you a dream and then filmed it. Yeah. Uh, and in that vein, it ends up being closer to things like, in a way, because to me, this, this movie is also this way, is Videodrome, mm -hmm. where like, if you describe Videodrome to somebody, it sounds like you're describing a dream. Like, and I was in a homeless shelter, but everybody had TVs, and then I stuck my hand in my chest, and I pulled out a gun, and it's like, yeah. that all sounds like you're having a bad dream. And Mother, to me, plays the same way, where it's like, oh, you know, uh, we moved to a new house, it was out in the middle of nowhere, and people just started showing up all the time, and I couldn't get them to leave. And there's a lot of that that sounds like someone describing a nightmare. If I'm not mistaken, I believe he said this did come out of a dream. And, so. and that is probably the thing that I like the most about it is uh, I like the fact that it felt like an attempt to film uh, a nonsensical dream. Right. Uh, aside from whatever symbolism is contained within, I could at least appreciate it and latch onto it at that level. I mean, I think there was a point I just let go of trying to interpret the thing mm -hmm. and just took it on as a, a experimental film, just let it wash over you. And I, that was the point I started genuinely enjoying it Yeah, where I was like, let's just go for this ride and examine it on all the merits it does have. Cause not everything has to make sense narratively to be good. Right. You know, if it's not that kind of film. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no mythology here to say that they broke. <laughs> right. It's, it's, as you said, it's dream logic throughout this enti entire movie, almost from the get go yeah. with uh, Jennifer Lawrence married to uh, Javier Bardem, who starts off sweet and somehow becomes sardonic along the way uh, in the way that, that your, your significant other can only become in a dream. You know, uh, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer as the guests, I know this is it's a super odd film, but but I say overall more than I liked it. I say I admire it. I think mm -hmm. it's a ballsy decision, both by the the uh, production company to actually put this thing out at all, and even for Aronofsky, who's a relentlessly weird director. This is a relentlessly weird film. Yeah, um, obviously, just not going to be everybody's cup of tea, um, and that's fine. But I do think it's it. A film worthy of attention, you know. And if uh, if such a non-commercial film can go on to gross like fifty million dollars, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it, cinema ain't dead. True. I mean, <laughs> it, it it gives you a little bit of hope for um, for audiences. You know, there's a lot of talk about audiences moved away from that. They don't make the mid-budget adult movies anymore, and all that kind of. I mean, all that talk that's been going on for the past five years, but. To me, if, if something as artsy as Mother can can make fifty million, then uh, then you know things aren't so bad. When Alejandro Jodorowsky is calling the production company right now, <laughs> if I got an idea for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a thirty-minute uh, film called Mother: The Downward Spiral. It's the behind-the-scenes account that gets into the production in detail. There's a uh, six and a half minute the makeup FX of the film and that's it. I can't believe there's no commentary track on this thing. This is one you're like, yeah, I kind of need a commentary track. Uh, especially for a set that comes with a 4K edition. Um, mm -hmm. I, it feels like for a movie this weird, uh, so not nowhere near as much bonus material as you would need to make it worthwhile to buy the thing. But I guess some, I know some directors, I think Aronofsky's like Lynch. He's kind of like, I don't want to talk about my film. I yeah, just Colin's want you to watch it. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, fair enough. Um, I, 
it just as a film fan, I prefer to have that stuff there optionally for, for me, but I get why a director would be want to mm-hmm. be like, eh, I'd rather let you figure it out for yourself. Uh, a much more straightforward film, but yet a, I would say still qualifies as a horror movie <laughs> is the real life story directed by Catherine Bigelow, Detroit, based on the Algiers Motel incident, uh, during, that took place during 1967's 12th Street Riot. The riot has been much more commemorated in history, uh, than the very disturbing Algiers Motel incident, uh, Incident that went on during it. Basically, the De- the Detroit police had staged a riot on an unlicensed club. It started um, it started a riot from there. Uh, people looting stores, throwing rocks, and it turned into a gigantic riot with fires everywhere. Uh, civil authorities showing up all over the place. The National Guard, Army paratroopers. Uh, so there's just chaos, right? So, meanwhile, you follow that story and you also follow this professional black R&B group called The Dramatics, who at that point were just getting their first break. And they were about to appear on stage at a big concert when it's all shut down. And uh, they – trying to leave the city in the bus, they can't. They end up having to get uh, – to stay at the Algiers Motel for the night, where they meet up with two white girls who are, who uh, introduce to them to some of their friends. They're all sort of hanging out. One guy in there uh, starts firing a starter pistol out the window, thinking he's being funny. Well, that starts reports there's a sniper for coming from the Algiers Hotel. The police show up, and wouldn't you know it, they're a bunch of racist assholes. Yep. And horrible, horrible shit goes down as this turns into kind of a bottle horror film that's about these people who are just trapped by this authority figure who wants to, you know, show them how big his dick is, even at the cost of like these people's lives. Yeah. And it's a difficult to watch film um, with some really solid performances. John Boyega, unfortunately, I don't feel like he had as much to do here as I would have wanted him to as kind of the playing an important role that one guy who's a cop who is, you know, he's code of blue, but he's also like, well, this is going too far, but doesn't know how to straddle that line in the mm-hmm. situation. And then, of course, Will Poulter, who will be playing villains for the entire rest of his life because of his his unfortunate face, <laughs> playing the main racist cop here. Um, but uh, John Krasinski has a brief role in this. Anthony Mackie. Um, uh, there's a lot of recognizable people in this movie. I felt like overall... This was a a uh, 60s racism simulator for people who've never really understood what it felt like to be powerless against that. It's like yeah. you feel like this movie should have been VR. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know that I have – this is one where sometimes a movie is sort of exactly as advertised, and I felt like this was kind of that way, and I don't know that I have anything to add to the conversation, it is what it looks like. If you've seen the trailer, it is that it is that extrapolated. Um, and I, I, you know, I know that it wasn't necessarily like critics didn't seem to respond well to it. Audiences didn't either. I think the audience thing has more to do with the fact that we're still seeing that stuff play out in public, and yeah. so it's always difficult for people to go see 
get them to go pay to see a movie that matches what looks like when they turn on the TV. I mean, to, um, to me, this was one of my favorites of the year, but I do think it suffered, as you're saying, from that United 80, 83 uh, thing where you're like, wow, great movie. Nobody's ready to watch it right now. Yeah. It was a little too immediate. Well, there was also a weird scuttlebutt about a white woman telling a black story that is that sort of thing that liberals do when they kind of eat their own. Right. Um, you know, and, and it's, it, I don't know that that's necessarily – it's impossible to tell whether or not a black director would have brought anything different um, because then you're getting into a you're getting into a conversation about race versus skill and all other kinds of things that begin to open up that conversation. I mean, to me, it is of a piece. It is something that Bigelow is interested in. I actually found it to be um, – it would make an interesting double feature with Strange Days. Sure. Uh, which also deals with uh, racist police violence it's set in a uh, dystopian future. Yeah, set in a, in a future. Um, and and so in regards to her career as a filmmaker, even though she may be a white woman, thematically it matches stuff that she's touched on in the past, regardless of whether or not it's her story to tell. Sure. Um, and so I thought critics might have been a little unfair um, about that. Uh uh, but then Hollywood's unfair because, yeah, maybe they should have looked to a black director first. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I feel like you still have to judge the movie on its own merits and not whether or not it was, you know, I mean, is there anything that goes wrong with its message because it was directed by a white woman? I, I've i yet to hear anybody name something. Yeah. They just seem distraught that that was the case at all. Um, and, yeah, you're right. They should get, like, for projects like this, maybe look a little deeper, but... Nonetheless, this exists, and taking mm-hmm. as it is, I thought it was an incredibly solid film. I can agree with you. For me, 2017's been such a bear politically and yeah. racially and everything else that when I saw the trailer, I was like, I know that's probably going to be really good, and I am in no mood to watch it. And that's that's kind of how I was when I was when I was sitting down actually watching the film. Fair enough. So, but but I I don't disagree with you. Um, so. there's a bunch of EPKs on here, very short EPKs. That's really about it. Um, you know, those two minute, some EPKs about various things in the production. They didn't spend a lot of time on the bonus features here. So it is what it is. Uh, then we have a documentary here, Architects of Denial. This is one of those films that if they had just toned down the hyper hyperbole a bit, this would have been a contender for this year. You know, yeah, so it deals with the Armenian genocide and the denial uh, by Turkey that there was a genocide like 100 years ago. And it is very informative, and it tells you a lot, but it also doesn't unfold. It's sort of... And it doesn't. This does not take away from the humanity that's in the documentary, which is what makes it watchable. Yeah, because you're hearing these stories from the people telling these stories. It's very watchable for that. There's not. Any, there's not a story that unfolds because it opens with this is what Turkey did. They won't admit to it, and they also don't have any particular solutions for that. And, yeah. and so they won't admit that's to sort it. of what opens the movie, and then so the movie offers nothing other than the human faces and and the. And again, it's a very educational documentary, but it it, uh, it at times can be a frustrating watch because it doesn't offer any potential solutions. It also there's stuff in it where I'm like, even from a political standpoint, there's this thing that happens in the movie where 
they have uh, one of their the documentary uh, filmmakers have somebody from their team who goes up to these uh, congressmen and and representatives and says, "Hey, uh, do you believe that there was a there was an Armenian genocide a hundred years ago?" Yeah, and these are people who are actively involved with the 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 group that in Washington that deals with that part. Of the world, yeah, that and country. It was so obvious that they'd been coached not to talk about it at all because not a single one of them does the political thing, which is what – if somebody came up to me and did that and I didn't know anything about it or I didn't want to talk about it, I'd be like, yeah, it's a very uh, – it's a sad situation. It's complicated. You know, well, well, uh, there's a them, lot of sides. One of them did do that. But all of them just sort of like close off. Right. And I mean, I will say – I've seen exactly that behavior in Michael Moore films for whatever it's worth. When yeah. he, when he, uh, uh, comes at them with questions, sensitive questions, they do pretty much exactly the same thing. So I was like, that could be real. I mean, I feel like this is more like necessary propaganda than anything else because yeah. I knew next to nothing about the Armenian genocide. And this is produced by two, uh, Hollywood Armenians, uh, Dean Kane and Montel Williams, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just right from the beginning, it's so heavy handed, but as it goes along, you stop minding that as much as you start discovering what exactly happened and how horrible it was yeah. and is still going on. <laughs> you're like, okay, I guess you get to be a little heavy handed, yeah. but by the end you're kind of like, there's no subtlety or delicacy to this. And there's a lot of like points where you question as you're saying, well, how reliable is this information that you're giving me, especially with as regards to the American government refusing to acknowledge in any way, uh, you know, Turkey's misdeeds. I wanted to know more. I wanted to get more perspective from the Turks, not in regards to me having sympathy for them, but it does little to establish what their original motivation was for the genocide in the first place. And I wanted to know that. I wanted, like... I wanted to know why. And I had to piece that together in the best I could tell. It had a little bit to do with them wanting the land, and it had a little bit to do with the fact that Armenians are Orthodox Christians. Yeah. And it's interesting for, especially in our current political climate, and and I know that you, <laughs> we've, we've talked enough for me to know that this is a particular issue with you, is how entrenched our government is in, uh, evangelical Christianity. Yeah. And for us to not support a Christian nation in favor of a Muslim nation seems at odds with the rhetoric that comes out of our government. Well, but Turkey's also, because of that, probably a stabilizing agent in regards to they're a huge, rich Muslim nation that we don't have a conflict with. So why start shit by saying, Hey, you guys killed a bunch of our men who are also sitting on massive oil reserves yeah. and are cooperating with us fully in yeah. a way that other countries, uh, Middle Eastern countries with the oil reserves that large don't as much. This, this film is also up to the minute. Cause I remember, I remember what is it? Early summer, or late spring. And they show it, they show it from a different perspective. I didn't see this, but it was when, uh, Erdogan from the, the Turkish prime minister, mm-hmm. um, I saw it when he came to visit Trump. He pulls up in his limo. The Armenians are are protesting across the street. He has like a dozen guys with him, like Secret Service, like thug guys. Mm-hmm. They get out of the limo. They're looking at the Armenians. They're talking amongst themselves and talking amongst themselves. And they and from the POV I saw on the news was 
shooting them at the limos and then running down the hill towards the protesters. Mm-hmm. In this, you get it from the protesters' POV, which is they were bum-rushed by a bunch of Turks who came down there and kicked the shit out of the Armenian protesters. Right. Uh, it's... It, so and that just I feel like that just happened like that happened like late spring I think right so the film is like up to the minute in regards to the information that it has I mean it must have been edited and released down to the wire and the other thing too is it's also unflinching if you're if you can't stomach oh it's brutal like points. beheadings and and there's tons of footage of corpses I mean there's there's so much uh, casualty of war shown that uh, you know if you're a sensitive viewer. I would say that, that this is a... Uh, this gets a little a lot faces of, of death. Yeah, there's a lot of very tough imagery to watch in this film. Uh, I, but all that being said, and this thing is very flawed, I still was glad I saw it. I mm-hmm. learned one hell of a lot that I didn't know before. There's still, obviously, even there's film things the film wants me to feel that I want to look more, know more about before I make my mind up completely on. But overall... I, there pretty much is no denying the genocide happened. And it's insane that anyone is still going, nope, never happened. Nope. Yeah. Wasn't me. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it wasn't him. Um, I made the mistake right after I watched this of watching the uh, Oscar screener for a movie called Keddy, which takes place in Istanbul and is about how much the Turks love cats. Oh, I didn't even and put that so together, it was yeah. kind of hard for me to like, you know, after that come to a judgment because like, oh, but they love kitties. I can't stay mad, mad at you, Turkey. My, my <laughs> The film I watched after this, and I don't mean to go ahead and segue into this, but it provides the perfect segue. The the film I watched immediately after this was Wolf Warrior Two. Oh boy! And the problem I had with that was have watching a movie with the real world, uh, like horrors of war, followed by something that was so corny, yeah. but still for some reason wanted to show that ugliness. And so there's like pits with like dead bodies, and there's all these like there's all these violent images that feel like cartoon versions of what I just watched in Architects of Design that was really unpleasant. Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> this this series, Wolf Warrior, Wolf Warrior 2, being one of the most successful films in China of all time. Right? It's Rambo First Blood 2 for yeah. China, is well, all this it is. Ends with prop- it ends with, and the Chinese, just remember, the Chinese army will always be tough or whatever. And um, I was like, what? It's the most blatant flag-waving thing I've ever seen from another, from another country. Yeah. He puts the flag on his arm and waves. <laughs> he literally waves the flag early on. It was the uh, fastest film to surpass f- uh, $500 million and to gross more than $600 million at the, the Chinese box office. Total gross of uh, $870.3 million. That's insane. Uh, yeah, wow. Um, and it's not a good movie at all. <laughs> I, you know, I in, it moves at a clip, and it has big action set pieces. It has a ton of carnage. It has a high body count. There's yeah. people shot all over from beginning to end of this movie. But the movie's also like kind of unrelentingly dumb. Yeah. Like it, it they treat Africa as a country and not a continent. Right. And so it's just Africa. Yeah. Like it's not, you never get any specifics about like, well, where like it's this, uh, disgraced soldier who, um, goes and moves to Africa. Yeah. The country of Africa, the country of Africa and becomes embroiled in some kind of something. At first it's like, 
at first it seems like it's going to involve this doctor who the Africans want, but then it kind of just becomes about how, oh, there's warlords and yeah. they, they're insurgents and he's fighting them <laughs> and they were led by an American. Yeah, um, uh, what's his name? Frank Grillo. Uh, Frank Grillo. Yeah. Who, that's becoming more and more common these days, of course, in Chinese films is to get, you gotta get one big American star in there. And Grillo, I don't know if he's big, but he's getting bigger. He's, yeah. he's still gettable for a reasonable price at this point. I mean, for Christ's sakes, he was just in Beyond Skyline. Uh, and then Selena Jade as well is in this, uh, playing the love interest doctor who, uh, is on from the show Arrow. Um, you know, once again, not a huge get, but there she is. I mean, the action is okay. It's just, I, I've never been the biggest fan of like this type of action movie, the military action movie. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there's lots of carnage, but I don't want to just see bodies dropping. I want to see some style. Yeah. And there's no real sense of style. Everything feels like you said, like just like a, it feels like a cartoon, but one from the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It does. It definitely has that. Rambo feel and not a first blood feel, but like the Rambo animated series feel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, there's not a lot of, if I'm going to say anything like really positive again, it, it moves quickly. It's, it's right over just a tad over two hours and it, it, it speeds along because it's made for an international market. Um, dialogue is kept to a minimum. Uh, yeah, so thank they God. Yes, yeah, so they don't have to really do any of that. <laughs> Whenever they do talk, it doesn't come out well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, but there's also dumb. I mean, there's dumb shit in it. Like at the end, when he goes into battle, for some reason, I couldn't figure out why he takes, uh, he takes the doctor and the little girl with him when he goes into the final yeah. battle. And I'm like, why did you bring them with you? There's inexplicable dialogue, like when the. Boy is re there's this little boy that he just like carries around with him for some reason and at the end of the movie or the, not the end like a quarter of the way into the movie he reunites the kid with the mother and the mother says when they're reunited she goes I told you to not sell that porn and yeah. I was like what there's like, a, he it, wasn't selling porn what are they what are, what are they attempting to say what was what was that supposed to be and I it's not you awkward subtitles farm like, gold for World of Warcraft yeah it's like really <laughs> weird uh, really weird. Again, it feels so goofy, and then there's real ugliness, like the the car crash into the pile of dead bodies. And yeah. I was just like, again, coming off of Architects of Denial, I was like, I just saw that in a movie that didn't feel like uh, like some you know watered down Jackie Chan. Well, it just this movie wants to keep reminding you how horrible everyone else is <laughs> and how great the Chinese are. Yeah. And that is its mission when it goes however look at this. Look at what they did to these people. Look at that's because they don't look at that American. Look at what that American is doing. He doesn't care. It's just about money to him mm -hmm. over and over. Which, you know, it's not wrong, but <laughs> it's just tiresome when it's so transparent. That's all. I'm surprised that a movie this unrelentingly violent made so much money. Yeah. Me too. And a little scary, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough about, we spent more time than Wolf Warrior two deserves. Quite frankly, did you see Wolf Warrior one? I did. Yeah. I don't think I finished it. Okay. I think I watched about halfway through and just kind of, I, there's I a lot of flashbacks in Wolf Warrior two. And I didn't know how much they, it was quite some time scenes from one or where they, you know, just, and that also was a giant financial hit uh, yeah. of a film. 
All right, so going to something a little stranger, a lot stranger. This is a strange movie, and I can see why no one's really done anything like it since, is Pulp. This is a 1972 British comedy thriller uh, directed by Mike Hodges. If I remember correctly, I want to say it was his first movie. No, 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 he did Get Carter first. Um, But he had a career working with Michael Caine quite a bit, and this was definitely him. Ooh, I have this great idea that I wrote for Michael Caine, or I put together for for Michael Caine, uh, where he is a hard-boiled detective writer, and he is um, offered this huge amount of money to auto ghostwrite the autobiography of a celebrity he's not allowed to know who it is until he actually gets out there, which is weird. And the whole thing is has sort of like a voiceover, like a hard-boiled detective novel, and it's unclear. It feels like some stuff that's happening, because people start you know, turning up dead, it feels like some stuff that's happening is happening, and other stuff is just in his his head, like a fantasy abstracted version of it, but it's never clear what is what? I don't know, man. By the end of this thing, I was kind of like, I'm not really sure how I felt about that at all. Weird before the mystery celebrity is Mickey Rooney. <laughs> is he playing himself or is he playing a character? He's playing a character who's okay. like a, who, but who is like a major movie star who's now getting on up there in age. Uh, you know, and he is suffer- has cancer and he wants his story to be immortalized before he dies. And then there's another murder. And I don't know. This whole thing is just kind of ridiculous. Is this a Kino release? It sounds like a it's Kino Arrow. release. It's Arrow. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. It's just a mess. You know what I mean? You're like, it's trying to throw so many ideas of satire, of, of pulp fiction. Yeah. Not the movie. The right. Books. At the wall and seeing what sticks. At the same time, it wants to be taken seriously as a Pulp Fiction movie. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't succeed very well at doing either. So, I guess, this, is this not one I handed off to you? No, I didn't I didn't get to see Pulp. Oh, I thought I did. Oh, well. Um, I mean, it's always a pleasure to see Michael Caine, of course, who I find to be uh, incredibly uh, likable actor, especially in his younger younger days. But, I mean, it's, just, it's no Get Carter. Okay, it's not as good as that, which is a really great Michael Caine, Mike Hodges f- film. And there's an interview with the director. There's an interview with the director of photography. There's an interview with the editor. There's an interview with the son of a producer. Always like, who the hell wants to hear from the son of the producer of a film nobody saw <laughs> in the seventies? But uh, there's four different galleries, um, and that's about it. It's um, like I said, this is one of those ones you go over quickly because I'm not sure how much there is to really say about this thing. It's it's a failed experiment at a comedy thriller. That is more mainly interesting as a what not to do, <laughs> but that is, you know, interesting enough that it's got Michael Caine and it's made by Mike Hodges. Um, real quick, Game of Thrones season seven. Did you watch it? I don't watch Game of Thrones. You don't watch Game of Thrones? No. What is going on There's right just now? Not enough time in the day for every single movie and show. Well, and that's one that. I wasn't. I was not um, even able to probably watch it until maybe the third season, and by then I just let it go. Okay, I've seen the first episode. You should go back and watch it. It really is that good. It really is. I promise you. Don't listen to the naysayers. It's going to be looked back on one of those shows like The Sopranos, where people are like, "That was one of those golden age moments of television." And season seven, despite a certain amount of people out there who, of course, do with any show after I think ever since season five, they've been like, "Oh, it's going downhill." Game of Thrones has not been going downhill. It's just 
the way people are, in my opinion. And season seven, I thought was in particular a standout. I'm not going into plot stuff here, but I will say the Blu-ray set comes out with audio commentaries from multiple different directors on here in episode guides. There's a, uh, a look inside the art department for, uh, about, um, 24 minutes and then 21 minutes, two different two part featurette that looks at all the production design, which obviously is one of the giant appeals of the show is how incredibly elaborate the production design is. There's uh fire and steel creating the invasion of Westeros 30 minute, uh, EPK looking at the production of that. There's, um, animated tours through the histories and lore of, uh, the various things, Casterly Rock, the Dragon Pit, the Citadel. Uh, the coolest thing on here is Conquest and Rebellion, which is a 45-minute uh, animated stories that look at the prehistories of the, the families of Westeros, which definitely is kind of a wink and a nod to what they're saying is coming up next after Game of Thrones, which will be shows that are prequels to it. So this kind of feels like, hey, we kind of animated some of the notes we took for our Bible mm. about it. So if you want kind of a preview of stuff to expect from that... There you go. That's that's what you're going to get. But once again, I still think this is one of the top 10 shows on TV and has been ever since it came out. And it remains super strong. Um, I'm telling John Golson and I'm telling everybody else, you should, if you haven't started Game of Thrones, it's a good time before someone spoils whatever happens at the very end for you. Uh, you did get to see Bad Lucky Goat, right? I did. This may have been, I mean, short of election, which I'd seen before. I think this was my favorite in the in the stack. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I quite enjoyed Bad Lucky Goat. It was exactly, it was like, a, you know, you, you have, sometimes you it's a lazy afternoon and nothing's really, you're not necessarily bored, but nothing's really engaging you. And then you pop something in and you find yourself like transported for a little while. And that okay. was my deal with bad lucky goat. Like, uh, I didn't have any particular expectations. I put it in and then I was completely engaged and charmed by it. And, you know, and during its running time, I, I really did like it. Can you describe the plot? Uh, yeah, it's this, uh, brother and sister. They, uh, <laughs> they, get an argument because the brother's playing a harmonica. I think it takes place in Jamaica. The brother's, brother's mm-hmm. playing a harmonica. They get in a fight. Sister throws a harmonica out the window. Uh, the fight escalates, and they end up running into a goat. And then it's one of those, like, uh, bad day movies where essentially they're trying to um, they're trying to take care of the car because the car is messed up from the goat, and it's a series of one bad thing kind of leads to another and snowballs uh through the whole movie and the 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 thinking is that the goat has uh bad juju that sort of like cursed their entire day <laughs> um they run afoul of gangsters and uh and the police um, the police yeah it, i i quite enjoyed it i mean it's uh, not it almost with the way you describe it, make it although everything is absolutely true it makes it sound like people could be expecting a very different much crazier, bigger type of movie than really it is. Oh no, it's a, a, it's a small scale little story of it. It feels, um, you know, it it the two kids are kind of charming. They feel like real brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Um, they they feel very much like they're actually family. And no, the stakes don't really get that high. Um, I, I mean, to some degree. I mean, the gangster part. I kind of when the gangster stuff started happening, I was like, I hope this doesn't take a dark turn because I was kind of enjoying right. how light it was. And it doesn't really take that dark of a turn. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the little things that they go through are sort of minor bad day things. But when you're a teenager at that age, they seem like into the world things. It's a, it's a 
coming of age story that's really about, hey, you should appreciate your family. Yeah. Because n- even when you may not like each other, they're the one that's going to be there for you when nobody else is. You know, um, I, I found this cute. I wasn't in love with it like you were, but I, I can totally see the appeal. I did love that they actually credit the name of the goat was Vincent Van Goat. Yeah. I was like, okay. Goat. 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 <laughs> That's the interesting <laughs> thing, too, is, uh, you know, we talk about – I haven't seen a lot of foreign films this year. Mm. And then I was like, this is subtitled, but it's Patois. Yeah. So part of it's English and part of it's not. Yeah. They're, they're, and it's, it's like French, English, yeah, pigeon. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't know if that would count for like foreign language eligibility. I kept or wondering about that myself. Because but again, t- you know, words like goat become goat. And then I'm yeah. like, well, that's English, but it's not. Yeah. You know? I don't know if I could have understood almost any of the dialogue in here without the subtitles, even though as you're reading it, you're like, oh, they are saying those words in English. Yeah. It's just such a heavy, weird pronunciation of it's these words. It's an accent, and it's also... Going in and out of other with, languages. Yeah, it's moved in and out of other languages. And again, um, it's also like the phrasing is different. Like, I'm driving. Uh, what does she say? It's like, I got I got drive yeah, instead of I'm driving. I got drive. I got drive. Like when he's arguing with her and she's trying to tell him. And I'm like, I can hear what she's saying. And that is I'm driving. But in our English, that's not I'm driving. Right. Um, there's a lot of that in it. So I, I, I was kind of curious about the eligibility because if so, it is up there with some of the best quote unquote foreign language. I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't know if that's the case, but. <laughs> Uh, it felt subtitled. Films it it seen. seemed pretty foreign to me, but I think that there would definitely be arguments because I would definitely say over half the, the words spoken are English just in a way that people don't normally I, speak. I'm of. glad I thought about this. There were the freaking shots in this movie. So there are their steady cam operator. They've got these steady cam shots that are insane steady cam shots that would normally be filmed with a track or handheld mm-hmm. but they're steady cam when they get out of the truck and they go and look at the goat that dude is the steady cam operator follows them in one continuous take around that thing the whole time and it's not and it's so silky smooth that any other film that cheap would have done it handheld right. and i'm like who the hell is their steady cam operator there's one where they're running like they're running through a a, a little not a shantytown kind of thing at night mm-hmm. and the steady cam operators with them. And I'm like, that would typically be like on a track or it would be handheld. And right. I'm just like, that steady cam operator is freaking running with a steady cam. I don't know who that person is. <laughs> they probably got shoulders like steel. Yeah. Right. But there were so many, there were a handful of incredibly impressive steady cam shots that, uh, that I didn't expect in regards to, you know, you see, we, you know, we've watched a lot of cheap movies and a lot of times they're kind of all shot the same. And so to see impressive camera work in a, in a film that's like a kind of a smaller film like this was, uh, to me, that really stood out as Unexpected, well. Unexpected because yeah. this felt like that this felt like the type of film that the technical aspect should have been very lacking and you would have forgiven it because it was kind of adorable, yeah. but this had actually pretty strong technical aspects mm-hmm. to it. Um, so, I mean, I definitely think it is worth a look. I know this was kind of a festival circuit darling. A lot of See, people I didn't really know that. enjoyed I, it. Yeah, I, I didn't even know until after I watched it that it played South by. Even, yep. So. I remember people talking about it then. Uh, so real quick, 1 million BC. Yes, it seems weird since the last show is on. I reviewed the movie 1 million years BC, which was um, the uh, remake of this movie uh, by uh, um, 
uh, I'm forgetting the name, by by Hammer Studios okay. with Raquel Welch. I haven't that seen a, One Million BC. Yeah, no, I know most. I didn't even know okay. it was a remake until I did that review and was reading about it. But now they just released another company released One Million BC, which came Ooh. out in 1940 from Hal Roach Studios, uh, which was also known as Caveman, Man and His Mate, and Tumac, with Victor Mature playing the the lead male protagonist here, who. Uh, Meets up with Carol Landis, who is Loana, daughter of a totally d- the blonde people tribe. <laughs> and they, she has to teach him to stop being such a caveman and like talk about compassion and things like that. And it's not just about the strongest survive. It's basically focused. The only difference between this and one million years BC is, well, a no Raquel Welch. So it's not as sexy by definition. Nothing is without Raquel Welch, you know, <laughs> um, and it focuses a lot more on that whole, hey, stop being such a fucking asshole and learn some compassion than the later film did, which was definitely playing it up more for, like, it's Ray Harryhausen stuff. Yeah. I mean, which that had Ray Harryhausen stuff. This just used animal cruelty. It's, I mean, they're literally, like, gluing, like, like fans on the back of alligators and letting them fight to the death with Gila monst- monsters and, and filming it. You know, there's a lot of, yeah, that animal didn't make it to watching this movie. They literally set one on fire. You're like, Oh God, Ugh. you know? Um, but all that being said, it was 1940. What are you going to do? And it's still pretty eminently watchable and fun for what it's worth. I mean, it's so ridiculous just watching the, all the creatures in this thing and how, how, you know, it's a giant iguana. It's a giant evil turtle. You know, it's kind of laughable in and of itself, but you know, the acting is solid for 1940 and you can see why it was something that Hammer would said, Hey, I got an idea for a film that would be fun to remake. There's not a lot of Extra here is audio commentary by a film historian in a photo gallery. But hey, you know, if you were already thinking you know someone who loves dinosaurs and you're planning on getting them one million years BC, it would be great to give them a sandwich of both of them and go here, compare and contrast. Um, the movie, I just got this one and I should have gotten it a while ago. And uh, I'm sad about that because this is a movie I felt like deserves more attention than I can give it just having seen it myself. But this is a 1980 rockumentary film. Uh, called DOA, A Rite of Passage, that was kind of a, for me, a um, white whale as a kid, because the video store that I'm in my town had a copy of it, but it was fucked up, but they, for some reason, wouldn't take the box off the wall, and I was like, it doesn't work. It literally stops 20 minutes into it, and they're like, "Uh." Like so, it's like basically hucksters. But it's the idea is that this is supposed to be a documentary showing the origin of punk rock, which you know that's a little like a high praise for what this is, which is more sort of just a slice of life around the time when the Sex Pistols were touring the United States, and it's and you know dealing with bands like the Dead Boys, Generation X, the Rich Kids, X Ray Specs, Sham Sixty Nine. Iggy Pop, it's following these people around, but really mainly focusing on the fans and the environment around them versus the authorities. It interviews a bunch of very stuffy British government types who are just clearly don't have the faintest idea what to do about this whole thing at all. And it's quite funny. But this movie is probably best known for the first and really the only straight up interviews with Sid and Nancy that is are interspersed throughout the movie as Sid is on and off, nodding out from heroin, who offers, says, hey, if you give us 100 pounds, we'll let you film us uh, having sex. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I know. it's They were a mess. 
And it, but those sequences were the reason why Alex Cox made the movie Sid and Nancy. He watched this movie and was like, "Oh, I have an idea for him for a version of that movie that I think would work." Um, and that is a great movie. But yeah, this is interesting. It's definitely one of the most like definitive looks at this period. I mean, this is a companion piece with the first dec- uh, Decline of Western Civilization movie, which covers punk in LA. This definitely does a lot more stuff than England, some stuff in America as well. Uh, but I I did enjoy it. It's certainly dated, <laughs> you know, but that's kind of the point. And this um, uh, special edition is actually kind of cool. Uh, it's got a great, uh, case for this thing. There's actually a version of this you can get that makes it look like it's a video cassette case, you know, which is kind of like a thing you do now. There is a documentary about the making of this that is longer than the movie. <laughs> the wow. movie's only like an hour and a half. The documentary is almost two hours because there was a whole story behind the making of it where this movie almost didn't come out. It was produced by the guys who did high times and then Reagan got into office in the middle of filming it and suddenly all the money dropped away because everyone was like, yeah, we're not interested in giving any money to a a magazine that uh, supports drugs. So, and there was a lot, a lot more stuff on top of that. Uh, There's a whole two sided poster in here, uh, a whole booklet with information. It's, this is a, a rare sex pistols photo gallery. This is a solid collection for anyone who likes to know more about the history of punk. This is one of those important to have documentaries. Um, then there's The Apartment, which couldn't be more different of a movie, but in its time was also considered very controversial. Strangely, we watch it now. I guess you can see it. But for Billy Wilder, you figured this is a movie Billy Wilder directed following up Some Like It Hot, which you would thought would have been more controversial. Two guys cross-dressing <laughs> for the 50s when it came out. The Apartment in 1960, this is now the new Arrow edition, uh, he reteams up with Jack Lemmon. He brings in Shirley MacLaine, who at this point was one of the most adorable actresses alive. She was just, she's one of those people. She's just mesmerizing at this point of her career. Um, Jack Lemmon plays a guy, owns an apartment, has found him. He's a, he's a working stiff who's found himself in the position where quite a few of his superiors are regularly borrowing the key to the apartment with him so they can take their various mistresses there. And he just kind of deals with it and finds other places to go while they're doing it. Uh, meanwhile, he's kind of got a crush on the elevator operator, Fran, played by Shirley MacLaine, um, unaware that she is having an affair with his boss, his main boss, who owns the whole thing, played by Fred McMurray who wasn't just a guy from all those Disney movies. <laughs> and there's a whole thing that's about sort of him weighing the fact that Fred McMurray is going to promote him to the top of the ladder. If he lets him keep using this place and just goes along with whatever, uh, versus him actually having feelings for this girl. And I kept being afraid on rewatch that this was going to get into very white knight, very friend zone type, like complaining territory. And it never does. Yeah. It's, it's shocking how much this skirts the edge of going into things that you could criticize it for. And Lemon's character is dealing with a real moral crisis on Christmas, mind you. This is technically a Christmas movie, a crisis. Uh, at one point involving her, her trying Shirley McLean trying to kill herself in his apartment and him having to babysit her back to health. But this remains a really charming film that nominated for 10 awards, won five, including best picture, best director, best screenplay. Um, 
It's been made into a musical by Neil Simon called Promises, Promises that won some awards. Uh, and it's on multiple lists as one of the greatest films ever made. And I'll, I'll say it. I think it holds up. It's been so long since I've seen it. I wish I had more to add to the conversation, but it's been probably, gosh, I probably saw it in the early 90s on cable, mm. and I haven't seen it since then. So Way it's been, worth been a revisiting. Long time. Uh, I think, I still think, if you were to give me who were the top 10 favorite funniest movie actors of all time, Jack Lemon would be in my top five. And they, like, movie after movie I've seen with that guy, I'm like, my God, he was fucking hysterical yeah. <laughs> and capable of. of like this movie really shows his range from doing real dramatic tension stuff to, to like, you know, pathos to just flat out slapstick. This is a, a solid movie, and the Arrow uh, collection comes with one of the best of the uh, boxes that they've put together yet, um, which is saying a lot because they're. I always think of their the way their titles look. They're kind of the mondo of like Blu-ray releases. They're just beautiful original artwork on everything they put out. But this is uh, housed in a very uh, a chipboard slip box and has a hardback book with essays, information about the restoration, archival stills in it. So that alone, pretty good. But there's an audio commentary. There is a 10-minute thing with, called The Key to the Apartment with a film critic uh, offering some insight what he think makes the film work as well as it does. There's selected commentary with that same critic. There is a 20-minute video essay called The Flawed Couple, which looks at the collaborations between Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon, of which there are many. There's a actress inter- interview from 2017 actress with actress Hope Holiday, who uh, was Margie McDougal in the movie. Um, and uh, she basically just talking about this film as well as the musical version uh, that came out uh, later. There's an informal conversation with Billy Wilder, archival screening, uh, uh, archival extra. There's a restoration show we- showreel, and then there's some older archival features. So this is a super solid set and probably about as good as a one as we're ever going to get for this movie, which deserves all the, all the kudos. Um, definitely a classic that I'm afraid somehow fell off a lot of people's radar as far as thinking of it as a classic, but it definitely is right up there as one of the best, best movies ever made. Uh, one of the films that we had this, this week that was, uh, one of the ones some critics are talking about. I don't think this is really making anybody's final lists, but I think there's discussion, especially when it comes to Jake Gyllenhaal and Tatiana Maslany's performances Mm -hmm. is the movie stronger, which is directed by David Gordon green, uh, and is based on the memoir by Jeff Bowman, who is the guy who was a spectator at the Boston uh, marathon bombing, who, uh, took took it hard. He lost both his legs and it's him just sort of putting his life back together again as the bulk of this movie with Tatiana Maslany playing his at the at that point ex-girlfriend who he wanted to get back together with. That's why he was there. He was trying to show his I can be supportive. But you know guy there who's made his intentions clear. He wants, you know, give me another shot. He loses his legs there to support you. You kind of have to take him back at that point, right? I mean, what choice do you have? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Miranda Richardson is in this as uh, his mom, who is also kind of glorious, best supporting actress performance. Uh, Clancy Brown is good in this as well. Um, the thing is, about this movie, I think it's a very well-made movie that ultimately feels a lot like a lot of other very yeah. well-made movies of a similar type, like structure. Yeah. What, what would be called the quote unquote disease of the week? Films. Yeah, exactly. It's, it is. Yeah. It, it, Her- it, heroic spirit 
over adversity. Yeah, and it's a good one of those, but it is one of those. But that's the same as like uh, that's the same as like a romantic comedy or anything else, where it's a, a film of a certain type, and then how good is it at being one of those types of films? And Stronger is a film of that type, uh, real world tragedy and recovery movie, and then it's. A really good one of those. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's nothing here that's going to surprise you at all. Yeah. But it's if you are like, I tend to enjoy those type of films, you'll find this is a very strong example of those type of it films. It is unflinching. If it has anything particularly unique, it's not unflinching in its um, – it's the way that the characters uh, are messy, mm. uh, which is probably closer to real life. Than um, than a lot of these films that can sometimes lean towards being really saccharine. Yeah, it doesn't uh, idealize any of these people. Yeah, like they're all they're, and it deals with the emotional baggage they would carry in these situations and all that kind of stuff. They're so. poor Bostonians. Yeah, and there's certainly moments of like very uplifting moments that have to deal with just the way people and exactly when sometimes when you need them to can say or do exactly that thing that you need from them. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that sense of human nobility in there, but there's also the exact opposite. There's points where, you know, well, after when he's on his way back up, he just does the, makes the worst possible decisions. Yeah. You know, he's a poor Boston working class, uh, you know, pseudo alcoholic. It's, you're not going to become like the superhuman noble type just by, the fact you have a, a personal struggle like this to go through. And I think the film is unflinchingly honest about that. And it's all, like I said, based on the guy who had happened to his book. So who appears as well in the bonus features here, the, which is just the one 30 minute, uh, feature at documentary, which does a lot of interviews with him about, uh, his experience in the making of it and things with him and Jake Gyllenhaal together, which is cool. So, yeah, I mean, Obviously, I, I don't think it's an exceptional movie, but it's an exceptional example of the of the uh, very specific type of story. Yeah. <laughs> um, our last film. I, I was actually. I feel bad that you. I know you said this just doesn't seem like my kind of movie, but uh, honestly, Dunkirk is the type of movie that if you didn't see it in the theater on the big screen, you're kind of like, yeah. I mean. I don't know. Maybe watch it in PlayStation VR or something. If it's not immersive, you're kind of missing the point. Because Dunkirk, for me, this Christopher Nolan film, is a gorgeous-looking movie. Uh, gorgeous-looking, gorgeous-sounding, that doesn't have a hell of a lot of plot to it. It's more of a sort of, like like I said, it's a Dunkirk simulator. It just throws you into the middle of it following a variety of different people and their experiences. The worst thing about this is, and I still take issue why they made the decision to do this, and other people have argued against it with me, and I still don't agree, that is very nonlinear in an incredibly confusing way. It's not till the third act that you start to put together when these things are going on, the different storylines of the people, like the people fighting in the air and the people who are on the beat and the people back in England. I mean, if you don't know about the story of Dunkirk, we did a full review on this. Look it up. Basically, all the people in, in England who realized their soldiers were trapped uh, across the, the way all got in their personal boats and braved the German uh, barrage in order to come rescue them, um, which is a very moving and heroic and true story. And this is, like I said, more of a... This is, this is an IMAX movie it, and a sense that in the sense that it feels like it forgets people will watch this at home at some point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think it's still eminently watchable, but yeah, I, I don't, 
the only way I could see me watching this again on Blu-ray is if I put on my PlayStation VR and watched it the 4K that way, you know? <laughs> I'd be like, okay, because that's pretty goddamn immersive. But, yeah, I, I'm surprised a lot of people are talking about it for Best Picture because it just so isn't in so many ways, but it is unquestionably on a technical level a ma- massive achievement. Um and if you're like, okay, but I'm not one of those people, Chris. I really enjoyed it regardless, and I would watch it on Blu-ray. Do they make it worthwhile for me to get it on Blu-ray? And um, there's a separate Blu-ray in here with all the bonus features. Um, basically, so and that was Nolan's spe- uh, specification because he was like, I want to make sure you get the highest bit rate possible for the movie itself. Once again, an experienced film. It's a very, very visual movie. There's uh, five chapters of extras that have a play-all function, or you can separate them by EPK. So it's like, yeah, it's a bunch of very highly well-produced EPKs that are divided up. You know how they do with these things when they do one of these like this. Yeah. It's like you can watch it as a movie, or you can just separate them out and watch each whatever topic interests you in particular. So, and it, there's a lot of them. So I'd say if this is a something that if you're really into Christopher Nolan and how Christopher Nolan makes movies, absolutely, this is worth your time. But if you're more into the Battle of Dunkirk, I would, and what was the reasoning behind it, what actually happened, I would say go watch Darkest Hour, which is from the viewpoint of Winston Churchill uh, making decisions involving what was going on at that time, which is a much more illuminating look in many ways, despite not being there. Of what happened, <laughs> which darkest hour, great, great Gary Oldman performance, also worth your time. Uh, well, that's it for digital noise, John. I'm sorry I had a couple at the end there that you didn't see, so I kind of had to shove you off into a no, corner okay. and let me monologue. You know, <laughs> that's that's perfectly fine. Uh, but that was a fun show. A lot of stuff for you guys to check out, hopefully. And, uh, well, you got a busy 2018 in front of you because we expect to hear back from some of you guys about stuff we recommended and what you thought and whether we were right or wrong. We can go shove it or you praise us. I don't care. I'll take anything. I'm desperate for attention. Uh, thank you, John, for joining me. And have a happy new I hope you hope you had a happy New Year's.